is episode number four, in which we're discussing Playboy by Guy Haley. I'm Jen Bozier. And I'm Carrie Honey. And this is Warhammer 40k Book Club, where we read from a crag. Every episode, we discuss a book that we've selected from the Black Library's Warhammer 40,000 catalog. We post the book on our website, www.wh40kbookclub.com, along with questions to ponder during reading. Listeners are able to read the book and then tune in to hear our discussion. We encourage participation through Twitter, the site, or Encrypted Box channel. Spoiler warning, if you haven't yet read the book, go ahead and visit the site, check out the book and the questions, and then come back to this episode as we'll be discussing the book from start to finish in great detail. As mentioned, this episode, we are reading Plague War by Guy Haley. This is the second book in the Dark Imperium trilogy by Guy Haley, in which Mortarion is launching his crusade against the realm of Ultramar in the name of Nurgle. Uh, we posed some questions. Let's dive in. Starting with our first question, as always, I have you like to, the book? That's a quick, like, interrupt. You know, it all sounds so, like, grim until you say Nurgle, and that just ruins it. He's just... It's hard. It's it's hard to take a demon seriously with the name Nurgle. It sounds like, it sounds like the way, like they, I feel like it's something that like a coroner would describe as being like a process of your stomach. They'd be like, oh yeah, that's just a Nurgle, right? Don't worry about it. Like, it sounds like it would be like an after death thing that like, I don't know. It just, it has this belchy sound to it, which it's actually based off of I think it's a Sumerian god, Nergal. Oh, really? It's actually, yeah, it's actually based in legit Earth, Earth, because I'm not from Earth, um, in Terran mythology. So okay, but see, cool. Nergal though actually sounds formidable. Nergal <laughs> does not. Well, he's just gonna kill you with pustules. <sighs> <laughs> so. I loved this book. I, uh, I had a hard time putting it down. Same. Like, I probably read it, like, we probably each read it in less than a week. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. Mm -hmm. um, I, I it, it reads so fast, especially once, like, the action kicks up. Like, the stuff that's not action-based, the conversations, Guy Haley writes such good dialogue everything just flows so naturally and as you're reading it i kept thinking i don't know what happens next and then once you get into the action bits it just so fast so smooth i loved it absolutely i i i liked it more than uh, dark imperium and i love dark imperium i'd agree i would agree i actually compared this book um i don't remember who i was talking uh oh it was a guy at the warhammer store they were having a anniversary i compared it to the empire strikes back in that it is the set the superior book of the trilogy i haven't read the third one so i don't know um but it also has that that darkness to it and yeah there's a lot around with it which i'll continue with that comparison but it was it was a much better step out than the first one in the first one is really good mm -hmm. so what were some of your favorite parts because right. there is so much in this book. Well, my absolute favorite part, where I was about just to go like, praise Reboot, <laughs> like it all up in church in here, is when he is chewing Frotter Matthews' ass out. Just. Yes. I, 
as I was reading that, I maybe, just maybe, uh, shouted, yes, queen! (laughs) (laughs) Because it was everything I wanted to say to Francie. Oh, 100%. I think the line that I liked the most is um, is when uh, Frater Matthew is saying, um, the emperor's there, he was with us all around. He helped you win. The emperor was with you, gabbled Matthew. Was he now, said Gulliman. I saw unmagnum psychic ability let loose. And then he, can, he continues on and he says that I am the only living being to have spoken with the emperor for 10,000 years. Oh, that was the part where I was like, yes, queen. Yeah. It was so, and I don't, when he, he says the, was he now, I couldn't help but read it with a sarcastic tone. Oh, which, I, I think that's the only way to read it. It's with the sarcastic tone. Gulliman's not a sarcastic dude at all. So, I mean, and, and Frater Matthew, Matthew, I always want to make it Matthew. Um, Frater Matthew says a few times that like he had never seen the Primarch like this. So like, congratulations. Like the most unflappable of the Primarchs, you made him lose his mind. Mm-hmm. Made him totally, totally lose his cool because he had, he's just so angry. And, it's, and I think it's, it's almost like a father telling a child because he's told him repeatedly what he thinks you're not going to change my mind and yet he's like no i will and even at the end as he's being hauled out he's like i am going to save him like you don't need to save him he doesn't need to be saved um, well and the other thing that i liked about that scene is that so throughout this whole book the adeptus custodies guy has been i mean they've mentioned several times that he was a big opponent of Gulliman, that he trusts him blah 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 and so i loved at the end when um Matthew is leaving and Sicarius says, he's like, you may be protected from him. Or excuse me, um, Colquan mm-hmm. says, you may be protected from him, but not from me. So it's a nice moment that this absolute fanatic managed to bring the custodies and Gulliman back together, kind of. My favorite line in the whole thing was like, as near the end of the conversation when Matthew says, but you saw my Lord, you saw your father's light. He is not my father. Gulliman said, he created me, but I, I assure that. you priest that he was no father. King Connor was my King father. Connor. Yes. I loved that. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Um, but I love that. And I, there's so much with Gulliman that I liked. One of the things that I also really liked, and again, we'll talk about this, but I loved, it was one of the lines that I really liked when um, he's talking with Yasili and he says, uh, do you think you can truly comprehend the workings of my mind? And she said, no, of course not, it's impossible. And he said, then you can understand by extrapolation, I merely suppose for I am as, unable, I am as able to understand the emperor's mind as you are to understand mine. And it was just this nice, mm-hmm. he was kind of putting her in her place. But I, I love that whole interaction with him because you can see that he is so desperate to have somebody just look at him as like a normal dude. Right. right? And not, like she calls him reboot. And he's fine with that because he just wants to have that human connection with oh, another human What being. was it like when he called, when she calls him that and he just kind of like startles and she's like, 
Yeah, she's like, she's did like, I overstep my bounds? She's like, can I call you that? And he's like, no, that that is my name. I just forgot it was my name. I thought my, my I thought my name was my lord or Primarch yes. or my lord regent. <laughs> yes, I, I did. I love that, and I love, I love when she calls him Robu. Yeah, and he's like, no. nope, no. Nope. Now you overstep your bounds. I absolutely love that. But she also has a nasty little line in there that I like in which she's talking about the Inquisition. And she says, actually, there's two things I like in here. The one is when he's like, did you know that the Imperial cult was founded by Lorgar and that he was the first Primarch to turn her uh, traitor? And she's mm-hmm. like, I wouldn't tell anybody that. And, but I like when they're talking about the Inquisition and she says, our mission is to reveal, theirs is to obscure. We are as opposed in our natures. Conflict between us is inevitable. There's so much wasted talent. We are all supposed to be on the same side. Mm-hmm. Perfect description of the Inquisition, right? Loved it. Yeah, that whole scene where he was saying, he's like, did you know that Lorgar was the first Primarch to fall, not Horus? And she's like, you know, you, you shouldn't tell anybody that. I was telling my husband, I was like, this would almost be, kind of be like if George Washington, I mean, it's not the same amount of gap here because, you know, we don't got 10,000 years, but because our country right. hasn't been around for 10,000 years. But you know, George Washington came back to life suddenly and was talking about the Revolutionary War. And we'd be like, you know, these things that you said and you did. And he's like, I didn't say anything. That's not what happened. Like, you guys have obscured everything, which would just shatter history. Right. Oh, yeah. For sure. It's it's crazy. I mean, the closest thing we can come to, I guess, would be like if Jesus were to come back. And be like, actually, <laughs> I mean, that's probably the closest thing. Cause at least there, there's what, 2000 years. So yeah. it's kind of, and I think there would be that same level of, but we have like a whole infrastructure built around this story, right? It would be, it, it's that same level of blasphemy from your own God, right. so to speak. Right. Um, And that's kind of an undercurrent throughout both of these books that I really like. And I have a feeling we'll see more of it in the third book as well. Oh, well, I hope so. To be totally honest, I I really hope so. Oh, yeah. I really hope they continue to explore that because there's so much there. And we talked about this with last book, but Guy Haley, I feel like, again, I feel like he just has a bag of seeds and he's just throwing them out mm -hmm. because there's so many little plot threads and ideas and concepts that he's throwing out that people could eventually take and run with. So I do want to go back to a point that you made Mm. earlier when you were talking about how, you know, the unflappable Primarch, um, uh, how Matthew was shocked at seeing him this angry and acting this way. So I also just read Guy Haley's short story, Armor of Fate. Oh, Oh, yes. And in that he is actually kind of throwing a hissy fit in his throne room and he's just like kind of throwing stuff and Cato's just staring at him he's like was that a joke he goes yes Cato I do know how to make jokes was that not written down in your books about me he's like well no sir you are not known for your humor he's like that was a joke <laughs> so that's a really good story too by the way oh, it's an excellent uh, story. Uh, that's a really good one too but yes but he was one of those. It's like it's, they don't they don't see him as having this range of emotions. No, and he's human. Not at all. He is, and 
again, we'll talk more about that, but there is something just achingly human about the Primarchs in a lot of ways. And then another one of my favorite parts that I know that you didn't like. So I love the Adeptus Titanicus. I absolutely love the Titans. And I loved everything with God's wrath. And so I liked, uh, there was a line in here and I'm trying to find it now, but it's when they said that um, God's wrath was known as being particularly aggressive and belligerent is the word they use. He was known as being particularly belligerent amongst the Legion. And I just love when God's wrath takes over. When it was so angry at seeing these other Primarchs that it just took over. And when he talks about how he's like, it takes all three of the servitors to try to get the arm up to shoot the gun because it just wants to get in there and fistic up. I love that. I, again, I really like the Mechanicus and the Titanicus. So I just, every part about that, I was like, oh my God. Um, Dan Amnett wrote a book several years ago called Titanicus, which is amazing. It's really, really good. But I would absolutely love to see Guy Haley write a Titan-based book now because that loved it, but you didn't like it. No, I'm not an Adeptus Mechanicus person. They, to be totally honest, they really creep me out. Like they're a little creepy. Really creep me out. And um, I actually had to look up like because they're describing it. I was like, I can't visualize what this Titan looks like. So I went to, you know, a little Warhammer wiki on my phone and looked it up. I was like, okay, that's pretty damn cool. It's this gigantic robot with a city or a church on its shoulders. Yeah. It's going, you know, just leveling things. But it's like Pacific Rim only awesome. I love Pacific Rim. But this see, is like more and I'm, awesome. I'm not really a mech person to begin with. So, like, I never really got into the mech mecha anime and... And all that, and uh, I loved Neon Genesis. <laughs> oh my god, I hated that it, show. I want that. It was one of the few animes I loved. You know what? I take that back. I liked it until the last episode, so I think most people felt that way about uh, Evangelion. But anyway, I've just never been like this this huge huge person into mechs, and like I don't like the Adeptus Mechanicus, and uh. Although, and I, I don't know, I guess I had a hard time with them really talking about machine spirits. And I don't know exactly why I had a hard time. And, it's, and I don't know if it's because, like, you know, they always talk about, you know, the machine spirits, you know, in these engines and things like that. And it's like, well, they just don't know. It reminded me of, like, you know, myth ancient mythology. Well, we don't understand how this works, so we're just going to attribute it to spirits or gods or whatever. And after reading the Horus Heresy, I totally see that because they don't understand how a lot of this technology works. 10,000 years later, they still don't, um, they've lost a lot of it and they still don't know how stuff works. So I just, that's what I assumed. Well, the Titans actually have a real spirit and a personality to them. I now, I whether got that from, from God's right. wrath. It was just, I don't know. It just, because I'm not into that because I didn't really know what Titans were really didn't feel it. Those fair. parts kind of bored me. Yeah, that's fair. I also, the last part that I just, that really stuck out to me was that first chapter with Kugoth. Kugoth is my favorite character, or as he shall henceforth be known, Chaos Eeyore. Um, but my favorite thing is he has a bunch of little lines that I love, but my favorite is when he's talking about Matarian and he's complaining about Matarian. And he says, the Primarchs are creatures of our world before any of them fell, and now he is an arch sorcerer. He is a liar, and and he insults me. I am an artist. Because he didn't want to go fight. He just wanted to boil a disease in a cauldron. But I just love, 
I can picture this because if you've ever seen what the great unclean ones look like, they're just this giant blob with these antlers coming off, and I could just picture one of them pouting, saying, "I am an artist." That's I kind of what I pictured too. I pictured this total like tizzy. <laughs> yes. Like, do you know who I am? I am an artist. <laughs> yes. It felt. It actually felt a lot like. Do you know who I am? But not like in a aggressive way, like a pouty way. Again, he is Eeyore. But again, I know we said this at last book, but Nurgle is so different from the other gods. And I really have a hard time imagining like a keeper of secrets or a changer of ways pitching a tissy fit because they are an artist. Like, I just, I can't imagine that. And it's as disgusting as Kugaf is, it's testament to Guy Haley. It's my favorite character because he's just, he's funny and happy, except as long as there's no piping, then he's happy. Is he happy or is he one of those that finds happiness in misery? He's only happy when he's miserable. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And yet all his underlings are like, he's not happy. I know. Well, like when he looks at everybody else, like cavorting and he's like, I want to be happy. But he's just <laughs> looking for, he wants to replace, instead of looking for his tail, he wants to find the disease. He lost the disease. Again, he's, he's chaos. Eeyore. I love him. Because I'm really curious if the disease he lost was the disease that they found in Sons of Titan, that Grey Knight's novel. Uh, no, because remember, it created him. Oh, okay. Yeah, Done. it created him. I, so. I keep trying to make a tie between these with, with the Grey Knights, just because it's, to me, it's just so crazy that, you know, because that Sons of Titan book, you know, came out at either the, either the end of last year or the, very early this year, and it's about Kugoth. And then now here yes. we got the Dark Imperium with them. It's like, that can't be too much of a coincidence. Actually, it might not be, to be honest. Yeah, if Kugoth is in that, then it probably is his disease. Which, speaking of the Grey Knights, that was the part that you really liked, or that really piqued your interest, right? Where well, right. Justinian... So, like, I was, thought it was so cool when the Grey Knights showed up, because so I was like, yes, because so, the Grey Knights would need to be there because fucking demons, yo. Um, that's kind of what they do. Mm -hmm. um, although, the Inquisition wasn't there, which was interesting as well, because mm -hmm. they're usually with the Inquisition. But anyway, so Justinian yes. is, you know... He's kind of talking, he's like, you know, I see them and I hear they're called the Grey Knights, but I've never talked with them. Like, they won't talk. They don't mingle with us. Like, we don't really know anything about them. And he really goes into the secrecy behind the Grey Knights. Which, again, I found fascinating because after reading um, the second Ultramarines or the second uh, Ural Adventures Chronicles trilogy. The fifth, the fifth book. Right. So it's the Grey Knights that retrieve the ultramarines and they knew exactly who they were and not only that but he fought along with them and he took them back and you know brought them back to uh, mccrag and all that so i find it interesting that maybe some of the great maybe it's not some of the great knights try to be secretive some of them are very open but it was just interesting that justinian didn't really know who they were and he kept saying he's like well they must be you know space marines and he's asking his nova marine companions and they're like well we don't know anything about them we don't talk to them Although no, no, the Nova Marines are Eeyore, I think, as well. Oh, they were so grim. They're so, so they're downers, man. Oh, totally. And like, you know who they reminded me of was that chapter that the Ultramarines have to deal with. Speaking of the Uriel Ventress Chronicles, I think it's in the second. Yeah, it might be the third book. Ortifactors. 
Oh, the more okay, I couldn't remember who it was. Talk but... about total Debbie Downers. Right. The Overeans are basically just like, this is our lot in life. Like, I, I really did expect the chapter master to be like, ours is not to wonder why, ours is to do and die. He pretty much really is. About. Right. Yeah. Oh, they but, were a little hard, which we'll talk about more when we talk about Justinian. But, but, but yeah, but so the Novarines, like, they're like, we don't know who, the, who they really are either, and we don't care, blah, blah, blah. And then Justinian, he's like, but I find it interesting that there are no Primaris Grey Knights. And so I, may, I had to make a note of that. I was like, are we going to have Primaris Grey Knights? Because that seems kind of weird, because that makes me wonder, because, you know, the Primaris are from Belisarius Call based upon the 20 legions, the 20 original legions, Grey Knights are not from those legions. Hey now, hey now, he's not doing anything untoward. It's just the nine legions. Sure. He's going through a tunnel. He's breaking up. Right. <laughs> going through a psychic tunnel again. Don't, don't trust Belisarius Call. Uh, no, he's uh, done. He's but, right. but, but he wouldn't have access to how the Grey Knights are made, any more than I think that he would have to the Custodes. Because aren't they right. also made from the Emperor as well? The Custodes, yeah, they're yeah. they're a different breed as well. Well, some, you know, relatively different breed as well. And so, I don't know. So eventually, like, I was thinking about that. So, with the Death Watch, right, they grab people from all over the chapter. So eventually, you're going to have Primaris Death Watch people. And you're going to start to see all of these non-traditional chapters and like obviously the even though it's the nine original um assuming best intentions it's the nine original legions you're going to start to see them trickle down as we saw in this book to the successor chapters i don't know if you'll eventually see them in the great knights i don't know if that's one of belisarius calls priorities currently mm -hmm. uh the great knights are special because they were created, created, uh, recruited and stuff through um, Malkador, uh, based off of a few of the people who remained loyal during the heresy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, is he going to just start yoinking some of the unnumbered sons? They've been a little, so they've been a little close-lipped about whether or not there's even psychers in the unnumbered sons. They've right. mentioned kind of offhandedly, but not really. So it was, I really liked that as well. And I remember when I read it, I was like, oh, that's a really good point. So it's hard to call it a favorite part, but it was definitely a favorite concept that he threw out. Right. Because it's something that we've mentioned is that there are so many, like you said, throwing seeds. There's all these yes. things out there. I was like, man, this could totally change the landscape if, if this stuff happens. But, you know, he mentioned in Dark Imperium when Felix was like, you know, that the Space Marines are having a hard time understanding that the Primaris are the future. Like, we're not making any more Space Marines like you. We are weeding you out. At the same time, it's weird they would do that. Well, hold on. But if they're weeding them out, but they're only using from those nine legions, in theory, why continue the Nova Marines and the Mortifactors at all? Because they're technically... Because eventually, so one of the things they've talked about is that some of the some of the OG Space Marines can be upgraded. So, they will slowly but surely start upgrading them 
and as they start to weed down and trickle down because remember they mentioned specifically in this book even that Gulliman is still adamant he will not have somebody commanding a legion of more than a thousand people so he's going to start seeding those people through and so as they start to get those primaris marines out of hawk they will start to keep till you have those legions because otherwise you would just have i don't know six or seven thousand primaris marines on ice which at that point, isn't that really him still commanding an 8,000-person legion? Just 7,000 of them are sleeping? Yeah, I never understood that his command about only 1,000. You know, I haven't gotten there in the Horus Heresy yet, either. Well, it's, it's pretty easy. I mean, it was just that after he looked at the Horus Heresy, when you had, like, 10,000 people marching on these legions, it was like, no. We cannot have another group of 10,000 people versus 10,000 people. So it's 1,000 and that's it. But the, but then there's still no Primarchs, though, of the split. Are you going to have, like, the Nova Marines and Mortifactors and blah, 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 all still looking to Marnius Calgar as the chapter well, master? They all, have the their own cha- they all have their own chapter master. Right, but now that the Primarch oh. is back, who do they look to? Oh, they're a chapter master still. It's still, it's just, I mean, it's still, like... It's still like, um, I think uh, Gulliman is like the president, but you still look to your state governor, right? The president's important and we listen to what the president says, but we all have our own, each state has its own government as well that dictates the majority of your day-to-day life, right? As a citizen of Texas or Colorado. I'm guessing that what I am seeing is that I'm not seeing a point in breaking them up because they're still having all these loyalist chapters, possibly. Right. As I, guess yeah. I guess it's the same because he's got them all broken up just in case, like, let's say the Mortifactors decide to revolt or whatever. There's just a thousand of them, so it's no big deal. Exactly. A thousand, you could have two, three thousand, two one thousand groups go up against that one thousand. So again, you never have. Now, having said that, Space Wolves are still rumored to have pre-heresy numbers because Lehman Russ read the book. Like, no. It's assuming Lehman could read. Anyway. Poor doggo. Um, he's a he's the goodest of boys. He is the so, goodest of boys. Moving along, one of the things that I I mentioned this last book too that I really liked, but in this book I think they really um, highlighted it. There's a big difference between Typhus and Mortarian. Typhus is a true believer. He truly worships Nurgle. There's a scene in which he's fighting some humans and. He's like, you know, oh, come join us. And the guy's like, we'll never join you. And he's like, oh, I just don't understand. And he seems so out, like, how can you not see what a gift this is? And so he's like really believes in it. But I don't, I don't necessarily get that zealotness from Mortarian. No. But that could, he likes it. He uses it. Mm Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily feel like he's like, oh my god, yes, plague, look at it. Whereas Typhus is, you know, giddy. He's gleeful in his work. Yes, he he truly enjoys what he does. And he is truly out there to recruit in the name of Nurgle. Whereas Mortarian, I see as someone who's just going to use Nurgle's gifts just to watch the world burn. Right. Now, having said that, there was... It's a really interesting line, and we'll talk a lot more about this later, but he did say, um, 
Let's see. Oh, he was talking about the emperor, and he says he is a corpse god, a lord of death, more terrible and vile than my adopted grandfather, who offers those who follow him the gifts of endless renewal. You look at this land and steal the ruination. It's a shame you can't see Nurgle's potential. So he seems to like Nurgle's gifts, but mm -hmm. he seems to look at it more as like a tool. Yes. Like this is this is a tool that will bring us to the next step. Mm -hmm. Whereas Typhus, I mean, this is his god. This is holy. This is wonderful for him. These are his mission trips. Yes. <laughs> Basically. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's strange because, and I know I've said this before, but I wonder if, like, Karn and Angron still have this issue, or if Lucius the Undying Blade and Fulgrim have these types of, we're very different and have different goals here. Um, there's There was a movie recently, The Favorite, totally lost the, and Miles spoiler, at the end there, uh, Rachel Weisz's character and Emma, Emma Stone's character are talking, and Emma Stone is like, I've won. And Rachel Weiss looks at her and says, we were playing very different games. And it was one of those really nice lines where I was like, oh, that's a really good line. But as I was reading this, the reason I mentioned is that as I was reading this, I felt as though Typhus and Mortarion are playing very different games. Yeah, I, I would Mortar agree. Yeah. Mortarion seems to be like coming at it from, I want to help humanity and mankind. Whereas Typhus is coming at it more from, I want to help Nurgle. A fine distinction, but a different yeah. distinction. And I found it, I don't know, I found it a little strange. <laughs> Again, we don't see that very often in the other in the other legions. Or at least maybe we just haven't had enough good books with the Primarchs. I bet, I bet we will now, because I have a feeling now that, you know, Reboot is back, that we're going to have more suddenly surface. Like maybe Korax will come out of hiding. Maybe Lehman will suddenly show up. Um, who else might still be alive? Of the loyalists, Vulcan. Oh, the um, lion. The lion. Maybe they'll fix. Uh, they'll fix Ferris Manus. Isn't he missing a head? <laughs> yes, but it works for soap, soap dish. It works for this. <laughs> we can fix it. Uh, or Vulcan. Yeah. You know, um, Vulcan's Vulcan's a perpetual, so we know he'll be back. Um, yeah, there's a lot of them. I think. I think the only ones Ferris Manus. So. Conrad Kerkers is like for real. He's dead. He's so not I soft dead. The, not soft dead. Uh, it's not a comic book. Um, so I would imagine they'll keep a loyalist guy for real. He's dead. Ferris Manus. Sanguinus then, or Sanguinus? Right, Sanguinus. Oh, but that would be so bad if they're like, oh, we lost Sanguinus, so you get to lose Conrad. And I love the Night Lords, but that's not, that's not a fair trade. <laughs> it's like changing a, changing a Charizard for a Magikarp. Well, but the, they also <laughs> lost Horus, you know, he's. That's, oh, so the, yeah, then there would have to be a, so, there'd have to be. Yeah. So you got Horus and Sanguinus, all right, that's. Okay, that's much better, I feel better that, That's even, you got Conrad and Ferris. Conrad, so. that feels good. Okay with that, Jerry. So now that we got that sorted thing, out, now that we got that sorted out now, and that Typhus and Mortarian are very different. 
there is another big player in this book. And we're changing the questions up a little bit. I apologize. Um, we're going to try something new this episode. Uh, there's a saint running around in this book. Speaking of the devout. Is she? What was your, what was your interpretation of the saint? Is she really? Um, I'm on Reboot's side on this. I think she is a psyker of some kind. I have to agree. And I'm really wrestling with this because on one hand, I've read um, all of the Gaunt's Ghost series in which St. Sabbath is a character. She is running around. We saw an entire book with the saint running around. She performs miracles. She does all kinds of things. They have a certain look and feel to them. Not the way this girl is described. St. Sabbath and St. Celestine have not burned out after the emperor guided them. And the saint, St. Celestine, had a very big moment. Now, granted, St. Sabbath wasn't trying to fight a demon primarch, the demon prince. Um, and I don't know if I don't believe in her because I'm like, oh, this isn't how the other ones are described. And the scene you can, and there are lots of documented bad cases. Or if I just don't want her to be a saint because I hated Sister Ayamla. And I hate it. I hate Freighter Matthew. Like, I don't want her to be a saint because I don't want them to be right. I don't want her to be a saint. Because, like, I am actually not believing that Euphrates is a saint. I'm reading the Horus Heresy and I'm not believing she's a saint at all. Um, my explanation for the things that, that she did, um, I who's to say she's not a psyker? Because, again, with the Horus Heresy... They don't believe in the magic, you know? I mean, uh, Magnus is like, but I got the magic. And they're like, go to your room. No magic here. So nobody really knows about it because, again, the emperor was keeping everything very close in about the warp. Um, So I'm not sure I feel about saints because I'm not believing that the emperor is a deity. Um, With Euphrates Keeler, I go back. I don't think she was a saint because... Okay, this goes back to like a really bad explanation about the saints, but this was an official Black Library explanation in one book that we read. The saints came forth because the emperor is trapped on a throne and can't do anything. They're basically the matrix of leadership and that they light the darkest hour and it's the, it's a deus es machina, it's the literal definition of it. It is the emperor extending his reach into somebody and helping out to turn the tide. The Emperor was fine. He was helping Euphrates Keeler. Why wasn't he doing something real to prevent the uh, Horus Heresy from happening at that point? Like some bad stuff was going down, but not like, you know, his favorite son murdered at his feet bad yet. So I don't ever, I've never have bought Euphrates Keeler either, but I guess if I don't believe Euphrates Keeler is a saint, then I would kind of have to not believe that St. Sabbath is one or St. Celestine, and I damn sure don't believe this girl is. I guess the other thing is, just my thing with the Emperor, I'm not sure he would make a saint. Um, right. I mean, like we talked about exactly. before, he loves mankind, not individual man. And I don't think he was that happy to see Reboot back. You know, he hasn't said what his father told him. But, I mean, he makes comment that his father had lost a touch for subtlety, and it seemed like they did not have a good um, kind of relationship. 
in that, um, you know, his, his father would say one thing or he would say one thing to his father and his father, you know, seemed angry about it. So what did he do? He took his sword, like mine, fine. You're going to be this way. I'm just going to take this and go home. Um, so with all of that, I don't see the emperor reaching out to save his son. Cause I, in some ways, in some ways, if he is conscious of what is even going on, I, I don't even know if he's conscious of what's happening or if he's just being used as the astronomicon, just constant, you know, beams right. of light. Right. Nobody knows. Right. Which, again, as Raboot says in that conversation with Frater Matthew, dressing down, it wasn't really a conversation. He does say, he's like, I'm the only one who's talked to this guy. You guys have no idea what's going on with him. And... Yeah, I, on one hand, I go back and forth. Is it maybe just a really powerful psyker who is able, similar to how the uh, navigators are able to tap into the Astronomicon, is this just a really powerful psyker who somehow manages to tap into that presence of the Emperor and channel some of it, his divinity, as it were, and his power to save people? But the descriptions, and I don't know if this is intentional or maybe I'm just like reading way too much into this, in Prospero Burns, there's a character in there. He's a, I think he's a remembrancer. It's been years. I think he's a remembrancer who Magnus is using as a spy to spy on Lehman Russ. And he's planting kind of, he's basically a reverse saint. Ooh, I'm never going to word it that way again because then I picture reverse flash. Um, he, I was imagining like, somebody inside out. So, you know, it's all cool. He said reverse. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, okay. No, no, not like that. Um, but it's basically uh, Magnus's own version of a saint kind of thing. And the way that they describe this girl sounds a little similar as when Magnus tries tapping into this guy. So, well, what's the first thing Raboot says when he sees her lighting up? He goes, Magnus? This could be a tool of Magnus. Mm -hmm. Because remember, and they talk a lot about this in this book. The Chaos Gods are not friends. They do not have a common goal. They are in direct competition with each other, which kind of makes like some of the, the legions who worship Chaos Undivided. I'm like, pick a stick, guys. Um, they are in direct competition. And the two people, because it's there's opposites on this, on this uh, spectrum, Slanesh and Korn cannot stand one another. Deech and Nurgle hate one another. So... And none of them like each other, but those two are the direct mm -hmm. oppositions. Um, Magnus would be in direct opposition of Mortarion. So, yeah, nobody, nobody, nobody can say what this girl is or isn't. Well, unless you're not now, she's dead. <laughs> Whoever was using her, whether it was the Emperor or Magnus or whatever, she's they burnt her out. So the two clues we're given is one's through Freighter Matthew. In his dream, remember a male voice speaks to him. And then she speaks to him and says, find me. But the male voice says something about, and I have it marked somewhere, but it says something about how you can use my power. Who could this be? Unclear. And then if you remember, when she appears to save her boot, she says one word. She says Ananthema, which, if you remember, they continually described that sword 
as being anathema to the demons of the world. Right. So that would not be something the emperor would say. That's I keep going back and forth on that because but remember, Colquan, when she freezes time, Colquan is the only one who's still awake for a second. And he looks at her and she says anathema and he says father he's his father or he says something about like yeah my lord because he serves the emperor but again unclear right because there i mean because even nurgle is not wasn't nurgle is kugoth was talking about how you know and the anathema with the sword how they was disgusted yep. that he had it and i just can't imagine i mean wait but is that the name of the sword or is that just what they call it that's what they call it. And um, so, yeah, that's what they said. So, but that's uh, not see. what the emperor has named the sword. This... I don't, I can't remember. Okay. It's terrible, so, uh, because she... of. Oh, sorry. Really quick. It says, she turned her head and looked at Colquan. In her face burned golden eyes as old as time. And from her mouth sprang the luminescence of a star. Within his ornate helmet, Colquan's mouth fell open. My lord, he whispered. So it makes it sound, maybe it's the Astronomicon, or maybe this is a trick. Because guess who else is old this time? Sage. Well, that was big. Doesn't mean it, I mean, just for the fact that Magnus was mentioned in this book so many times, I have to think it was Magnus. And especially, you know, like, I, I know I've said this like several times, but, you know, reading the Horus Heresy right now, really makes other conclusions be drawn very easily, especially after just reading, you know, false gods. Magnus has done this before. Yes. This is kind of his, well, his MO. And so here's part of the reason I hate on Freighter Matthew so much. They describe, so the most secretive and elusive of the legions who do not show up very often is the Alpha Legion, right? Right. <laughs> They describe in this book, Freighter Matthew was visited by the Alpha Legion. Well, not visited, sounds like it was charming. Um, the Alpha Legion visited his world. It wasn't pleasant. The Alpha Legion does not just casually show up. And then I refuse to leave. And it, maybe it's Chekhov's gun that I'm just waiting for the gun to go off now. Um, but you don't mention the Alpha Legion visiting this repugnant character and have it not mean anything. You don't mention Magnus five or six times and have it not mean anything. Unless they're trying to show that maybe, unless they're trying to show that maybe he is a little arrogant, uh, Gilliman. I mean, they do mention later that he never read the Lectitio Devonatus because mm -hmm. he just wanted to spite his brother. I mean, that's maybe, maybe it is just an arrogance. Yeah, well, he also wrote the Book of Lorgar, which is, you know, pretty much how to all he ever wanted was the truth. How to summon demons, one hundred and one. I mean, oh, yeah, but Lorgar. <laughs> oh, Lorgar. <laughs> oh, him. but the thing with like the whole that with the Alpha Legion, because you know, I don't know much about the Alpha Legion aside from that everybody's Alpharius. It's about all I've gotten from it. That's how they want it. Um, but you know, when they're describing, you know, the, the three serpent heads, I was like, I think that's the Alpha Legion. And then you texted me, I was like, okay, so I was right about that. But you saying that there's 
there has to be a reason because the Alpha Legion just, just doesn't show up and randomly murder a whole bunch of priests and peace out. And leave one alive, miss one. Right. Well, you know, they missed it because, you know, the poor people, you know, saved him or, or whatever. But I find interesting is that, you know, they they gutted open his favorite teacher. And so then, you know, because he, he's messed up, he keeps her skull and makes the skull a servitor. And yes, I know that's how they make servitors, but it's kind of weird when it's somebody you know. Well, let's actually bridge or jump a little bit out of order here. So Raider Matthew is on a mission from God. Um, how do you feel he about him? Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about him? How do you feel about his mission? Okay, after the first chapter, I was like, fuck this guy. <laughs> you know, I and I... Word and I am a Christian. Like, I am a religious person. But I am still reading all this, and I was like, oh my god, what are you? Are you, like, the 14th century Catholic? Who's out to, uh, you know, the, the, the self-penance rites and making everything ugly. Like when he was talking about, um, you know, he took down all the um, art with the emperor on his golden throne and put it with him with the corpse god because he's like, we should all witness his sacrifice. So that's how the early Catholics were like. It was never about beauty and art. It was misery and sacrifice and we are never good enough so we must always you know do the, you know whether it's you know uh, flagellate yourself or uh you know they yeah and you buy the penances or, or whatever so that was just driving me crazy yeah and then and then but then i snickered when i said that he's talked about how gulliman rewrote his sermons like <laughs> That's awesome. But then I got I, to a wonderful line and he was writing, you know, about Gulliman. First of all, the arrogance of that was just oh my disgusting. God. And then, of course, he's like, he's, you know, uh, condemning himself for the arrogance, but he's missing what he's being arrogant about. But the fact that he wrote, I was there. I'm like, you know, how many books am I going to read that has those first three words be, I was there? Because, I mean, that. So I got Horus Rising, False Gods, and now Galaxy and Flames. They all start with I was there when. And so when he writes that, like, Guy Haley, you have to be making a callback to Horus Heresy. We have to with this Primarch. It's just too, too much. I'm telling you, there's like all these little hints. Yeah. There. I feel like I'm a treasure hunt. And Peter so Matthew, I just. He does all this, see. and then he goes and tries to preach to Cato. I'm sorry, you don't. Oh, I looked at Kato was like, no. He just walks off. Right? Like, first of all, he wanted to be there by himself because he's got some stuff going on right now. So, so instead of, like, asking him, like, you know, how are you doing, my son? It's, let's discuss the divinity. He doesn't want to discuss that. It's, it's akin to, like, you know, missionaries going to, you know, these third world countries. And instead of, like, trying to help them with their problems, preach about God. I'm sorry, that's not how... That's not how you recruit people. You recruit people through your deeds, not by just kind of talking with them. And well, all, he, but again, he's on this mission to save to save Gulliman and right. And uh, I can't I can't talk with Frater about Frater Matto. And this is it, it's two part because it's Sister Ionleth too. 
I don't care if this little girl is a saint from the Emperor. I don't care if she is the literal right hand of the Emperor reborn. They directly disobeyed Gulliman. They killed a Primaris Marine. They killed an interesting character, Devoris. Oh God, that made me so mad. They killed my one of my favorite characters, Ashira Voy, the Oblivion Knight. The ends, my friends, and my husband and I actually had this like big back and forth on this. The ends do not justify the means. And he was like, they saved, she saved Gulliman. I don't believe that Martorian, I don't, I think, I do believe Gulliman, he might have gotten out somehow. But also, he maybe just unleashed a rogue psyker. But Freighter Matthew is so arrogant in his belief that he doesn't seem to realize that. Well, something that you and I talked about um, after we were, after we both finished the book was, you know, there there's a show I, I used to watch where basically this one guy was like pleading with the priests of this church to not allow this certain protest to happen. And and they were like, it's you know, it's fine as long as it's not, you know, he's not hurting anybody. What does it matter? And this guy who's going against it, he was like, well, he's like, well, I know that's not what God wants. And they're. And both these priests are like, you know what God wants? Like, do you, like, can you give us that number? Because I have never heard God tell me this, you know, so succinctly what he wants. And that's really how I felt about, you know, Father Matthew when he's talking to Reboot. And he's like, you know, but this is what God, this is what the emperor wants. This is his will. He's like, how do you know that? You're so arrogant in thinking that you know what the emperor is doing. You're so arrogant that you think that the emperor is even sentient being. We have no idea if the emperor is even conscious. Well, <laughs> beyond I mean, the astronomicon, he is conscious. He is conscious because he does talk about having a brief conversation with his dad. But you don't know that he's conscious enough, to, or that he's even interested in your everyday little lives, or that he was even lucid <laughs> enough. You are ants to him. But I think, to me, in my mind, I can't, I just keep drawing parallels between Freighter Matthew and Erebus. And we all know my feelings on Erebus. He's the literal worst. And I just, I feel like right now, he's loyalist Erebus. Well, I, I mean, especially when... I mean, it's very easy to make that um, correlation... Especially mm-hmm. when, you know, Reboot talks about, it's like, well, did you know that Lorgar was the first one to fall? You know, it's, he's also, the word bearers are also not someone you just casually mention in conversation. Yep. So, so there, so there's another thing. All right. We, yes, like this could be Magnus. What if it's Lorgar? Entirely possible. What if this is Lorgar speaking, Entirely speaking to possible. Matthew? Because I mean, he, this is a prime candidate, right? Or Erebus. He's like, ah, I see something of myself in this dude. So he's like, oh, he's a young me. (laughs) Oh, you. So moving from Frater Matthew to Justinian, we saw a lot of Justinian in this book. We saw a little bit of him last book, but we really got to know and feel Justinian. And um, he has feels. Like he has, again, because we're so accustomed to the OG Space Marine, which is funny thing to say given this guy's like 10,000 years old 
because we're so accustomed to like the ultramarines and the iron snakes and the traditional space marine these guys have very deep feelers compared to those guys and a lot of it was inside justinian's head i actually found him to be really petulant and unlikable <laughs> in this book he he was and because funny thing is he even talks about he's like he knows that he's acting petulant because he's he is yes. throwing a little fit that he is not he is. where he wants to be he wanted to be an ultramarine kicks a rock or just right or just stay as the unnumbered sons and right so yes i mean yes he has been around for ten thousand years which actually i made a note i was like huh so the primaris so these the vat born primaris space marines are essentially winter soldiers um More or less. yeah but, you know, he's been with, you know, this group of unnumbered sons. They, again, they had their own legion, essentially, the unnumbered sons for 10,000 years. And now you're going to be split up. That's already hard. But then to not go where your actual alignment is, that's very hard. And we saw that with, I forget what the space wolf's name is, but, you know, he didn't take that very well. No. Either. Like, well. And Justinian mentions that he lost his original family. He remembers being recruited as a young boy mm -hmm. and that they just came and they were like, oh, okay, yeah, you're going to come with us. He didn't get to say goodbye to his family. And that is a memory on him, which is another thing that's really interesting because um, they talk about in the Euro Event Chronicles, he talks about his young life and that he vaguely remembers pieces of it, mm -hmm. but that he didn't have any strong affinity for it. Justinian clearly still does have affinity for it. And then he had this brotherhood with these people he was friends with and they understood one another because they were all Primaris Marines. And then not only does he get ripped away from them, he gets put over into the Nova Marines, who the Nova Marines, again, similar to the Mortifactors, very, very different flavor of Space Marine, very different from the Ultramarines. They are very grim. They are very... There's a sadness to them. Mm -hmm. And and I felt as though that and that just wasn't what he wanted. And the thing that I thought was interesting about it is that part of me wonders if, so they're bringing back all of these new Primaris Marines, right? Mm -hmm. And they're bringing back all the Primarchs. So I almost wonder if they're leading up to a second heresy where people are gonna get to repick sides. And, and I say that because Justinian, I think he was the one who in the last book when they told that bell he started to succumb a little bit. Oh, so I almost, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and then he's so angry mm -hmm. in this book that I almost feel like they're setting the stage to be like, these guys, just like the original her uh, heresy era Marines, are subject to this. They have emotions. They have feelings. Mm -hmm. They're subject to falling. Well, also, I've kind of felt like Guy Haley, you know, really, you know, focusing on Justinian so much. And not just Justinian, but how upset Justinian is and how he doesn't like where he is and he can't get over that I can't help but made a note here that that Reboot seems to make a lot of people unhappy um, yeah. he's fighting with the Inquisition he yeah. split up the unnumbered sons and none of them are happy he's about to go to war with the priesthood he basically put Marnius Calgar and time out I think Marnius is now being upgraded. I don't know. I mean, this fact, like, you know, they were going to attack where Marnius was, and he was like, 
He's like, yeah, he can handle it, whatever. It's like, we're not going to go check on him. I guess. No, he just he trusted him. He was like, no, he's got this. He's good. He doesn't need daddy to come fight his battle for him. I just find interesting between, between these two books because, I mean, maybe Caligar is getting, is getting, you know, a little bit of a promotion, but, you know, he was just so... Caligar felt like he was being punished at every turn. Yeah. And I think he was being punished in a way. I really do. Oh, well, yeah. I, um, I don't know why, but he was. And it's just like, you know, Gulliman, you're just kind of coming in. You know, it's kind of like the meme where it's him. He's just like, you fucking people. You know, after 10,000 years, yeah. this is what's happened. I don't like it. So I know you've made this nice, pretty, you know, place setting. Where I'm just going to yank this tablecloth. And then we're going to start all over. And it's just going to make a lot of people angry on the way. And I found it hysterical that he made, you know, Colquan so angry with him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, then you're going to come be part of my entourage. <laughs> like, yeah. I made you mad. You're just going to come and hang out with me. Like, yeah. Who do you not make we... mad? <laughs> right. Well, and I think it's so for me, I worked for a startup many, many years ago and we were failing and we had this new guy come in and he made all of these changes, like broad sweeping changes. And people were so angry it actually turned us around and we were doing really great and you know it was awesome but the guy he basically came in with this i'm here to fix stuff mentality and so when i look at gulliman that's how like how i think of it is like he's coming in and he's like this ship is sinking i am gonna fix this and i don't care what people think because i'm the one fixing it and there is a bit of an arrogance there on his part that Mm -hmm. he's just like no no i know it needs to be done there is a bit of an arrogance there, which it works for him. But yeah, I do. You're absolutely correct. Is that he is, God, to quote like every bad reality show ever, he's not here to make friends. But he's not here to win. He's here to fix it. Well, he also made the comment, I think it was in this book, where he said that it might have been better for Horace's ambition to have won if this is what we have. I remember this is, if it was this book or, the, or it was the Armor of Fate short story, but... I can't remember, but I remember the quote. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that actually transitions us to something that I felt was really interesting in this book as well. Because we talked about this earlier with this human element to the Primarchs. Family is like a big thing for these guys, which is odd to me. So there was that comment that we mentioned earlier where he corrects them on how, no, Connor was my father. Mm Mm-hmm. He talks about one of my favorite passages in here is when he's talking with Yasili again, and he talks about his brothers and he talks about how individually our talents overlap. Redundancy, I suppose, should be incorporated into any system. And he starts talking about Robledorn and how Robledorn was a better, um, he was a better builder and he had, um, and, uh, but that Goleman was a better administrator. And that sanguinous, he talks, and he even talks fondly about Conrad Kurz when he says, mm-hmm. only poor Conrad knew. And she asks about him. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, he was insane. Um, but he talks a lot about his brothers. And he does, he starts to read the Lactitio uh, Divinatus because he feels bad that he spited Lorgar all those years ago. So even his fallen brothers, he still has this. And even Mortarian in his speech, he is bitter that the father, that uh, the emperor was never 
yeah, I actually opened it to that page. He's like, then tell me, Reboot, if our father were so good, look me in the eye and tell me that he loved us all as any father should love his sons. It's a... He's bitter. We'll talk, I mean, 10,000 years yeah. angry. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. But yeah. And it was, you know what, to me, that actually took me aback. Because Mortarian is always painted as this morbid, uh, morose, stoic guy. And they even really present him like this, too. I mean, his legion is silent. That's their war cry. Every legion has a war cry. The death guards is silence. He is just this very... And I love when they talk about his voice being like a tombstone, that he's just this grave guy to see him be like, our dad never loved us. Oh, that yeah. actually took me aback. I wasn't expecting that from him. Of all the Primarchs to be upset that daddy didn't love them, I never would have guessed Mordarian. I mean, he obviously, I mean, his daddy issues don't go there. I mean, like I said before, he has his... Adopt, adopted father's uh, soul in a jar. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. The line, the line that I had online, I had underlined for him talking about his dad is the slave of our uncaring father who made us do his bidding. And he talks about how, um, what does he say? He would not even deign to tell us his name. You swallowed it all. Poison milk from our machine mother, machines he created like we are. Like, there's just so much anger in him for his dad, which, and Raboot has a little bit of that too. Like last book, he talks about when he saw him, how disappointing it was mm -hmm. in correcting on Connor and this love of his brothers. Like, I, they didn't really show that with Martarian, but I wonder if Martarian also misses that fraternity. It's a weird thing. And then, of course, all Justinian losing his brothers. Like, it's a very human need and a very human hurt. Again, in these demigods. You know, and people can make fun of feelings, you know, mm -hmm. all, all, they, all they want. But it's all whole Horus heresy. It's because Horace got his feelings hurt looking into the future, what he thought was the, you know, yeah. the future. Yeah. And ended up coming to pass, but it's not the point. But because he looked into the future and saw that he was not there, that his, he's like, my God, everything I've done for my father and he doesn't even care about me to have me with him. Not realizing, well, it's because, well, you kind of like, you know, betrayed him and whatever. But yeah. seeing that was enough to be like, you know what? I don't know why I'm doing this for him. I need to do this for me. We're just going to go up against him. He doesn't care about any of us anyway. Yeah. No, it's all these. So there's a scene in the third, third Ultramarines. I keep going back to the Ultramarines book. There's a scene in the third book where Pisanius, uh, because he's consumed by guilt for his Necron arm, that he's carving the Achilla into his chest. And when I read it, I was like, calm down, dude. And my husband had made the comment, he was like, these guys don't really handle emotions very well. And it's one of those things that like, every time I read a lot of these books, I'm like, these guys don't really handle emotions very well. <laughs> like they really, I, they have all these feelings, they have all these emotions, but yeah, I'm not necessarily sure they're equipped for them. No, I mean, the, the Primarchs, I think, were though, because they were human kind and they of. were... I think they were, you know, and they were, you know, they were raised 
uh, elsewhere. I mean, who yeah. knows how they would have been if their father raised them, to be totally honest. Uh, they might have even been more uncaring. I, I, I don't know. Uh, because, you know, in reading about the past Primarchs, they were all very caring people. They may not care about yes. the same things. Or maybe the right things. Right. But, but I mean, Mortari, you could argue, it gets driven to a chaos god looking for that because he's looking for that missing piece that he feels he doesn't have. Right, and he feels like he never had it, apparently, from his adopted father. And, you know... Barbarous then, was a bad place. And then, you know, his... I guess his real father, or maybe not even father, but more like creator, I suppose. Yeah. And, and so, you know, so he's gone to Nurgle because, like you've said many times, like, you know, Nurgle actually loves his followers and Mortarion's just, I mean, he's looking for a hug. I don't know how else to explain it. He just wants, wants yeah. that hug and he wants to, you know, let Reboot know you're never going to get those hugs. Daddy's never going to love you. He doesn't love you. Which is funny because in the very beginning of Dark Imperium, Fulgrim says the same thing. Well, again, they, I feel as though a bunch of the, mm -hmm. a lot of the traitor uh, Primarchs realize that. That your dad doesn't care about you. And so that actually transitions into our last question, I think, very well. What do you think of Mortarian's speech? His, uh, I mean, to be, to be fair, he's kind of um, sort of looking for He's kind of monologuing. He is monologuing, but he has a captive audience, literally. Yes, this is true. Hey, yo. I actually enjoyed his speech. Oh, I loved it. I liked it more than when I Fulgrim talked to him. Because all the time oh. Fulgrim is just like, oh my god, stop talking, dude. It's because Fulgrim's a literal snake. And he's gross. I don't like Fulgrim. Again, like... A, Hey, did you guys know I'm reading the Horus Heresy? Because I haven't, like, you know, talked about this, like, 10,000 times. Uh, I know, right? Uh, but, you know, Fulgrim, and the few times that he's been in there, there's just something that just, I don't know. Like, I'm like, man, I'd imagine that he has his hair just slicked back and gross. He's just, like, greasy seeming. Just, like, you just, like, snake oil. Like, he's a snake oil salesman. He is. You know? He's the god. He worships the god of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But well, and who doesn't love that? <laughs> the thing about Mortarion, he's not wrong. No, he's not. That's the best part of the whole speech. So the thing that I loved is um, when he said, uh, continuing on that an earlier quote that I had said, uh, I should never have compromised my own principles, but I did. I was a champion of the common people. I abandoned them for a galactic despot. Now I serve the people again. So on one hand, you can look at it and be like, bruh, you're fighting for the plague god. But on the other hand, he genuinely seems to think that that's the better way. That says a lot when somebody would choose to be as disgusting as Mortarian is in the name of a god that loves you mm -hmm. versus his father. Right. Well, and I loved, so I don't know who, <laughs> it was one of those things that I was reading it and I would read Mortarians and I was like, ooh, his point. And then I would read Gulliman and I'd be like, oh, wait, no, Gulliman has a point there too. Like, it was just. 
Well, they both make was, great points. They do it, but they're having the same conversation from different points of view, which is wonderful. So I loved, like I loved when Gulliman said, the Martarian of old would never have allowed this to happen. That, because you remember in the lore, Mortarian was the biggest sponsor of the Edict of Nikea. Mm -hmm. He hated psychers, he hated warp, he hated magic. Now he's a friggin' Damon Prince. He's the king of the psychers, pretty well, the king of magic. Well, his response to when, you know, he said, I abandoned them for a galactic despot, now I serve the people again. And Gulliman's like, if I'm a puppet of an uncaring master, then what are you? A being who wallows in warp power while crying hatred for the witch? A plaything for corruption and disease? You blustered long and hard against psychic power and claimed total fearlessness and indomitability none could match. Yet when faced with death, the ultimate challenge, you failed. I loved that. So great. As a Mortarian flinched. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he's like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know me. Well, so that was a good blow, right? Where I was like, ooh, point one Gulliman. But then on the next page, uh, let's see, he leaned in close. You spoke with him on Terra. Tell me, what did he say? Mm -hmm. Did he release? Did he beg you to set him free from his golden throne? Gulliman said nothing. Oh, brother, it cannot be, Mortarian said in Mark Horror. Did he say nothing? Like, I loved, I loved every time he would ask Gulliman something about the Emperor and the Emperor wouldn't answer, or excuse me, when Gulliman wouldn't answer, Gull uh, Mortarian would be like, oh, so you do know. Like, he was trying to coax that out of him, right. which I thought was wonderful. Like, again, too, you do not fight for the Emperor, asked Mortarian. I fight for what he believed in. And advocates quibbling, you fight for yourself. Ah, oh, loved it. But so it's interesting because again, like when Fulgrim talks, I'm like, "Bah, shut up! You're evil, and everything you say is wrong." <laughs> but when when uh, Mortarian talks, and maybe I don't know if this is just Guy Haley being really good again. His dialogue is so good; it's so strong. I don't know if it's just him being a really good writer, but again, I'm reading Mortarian. This is a demon prince of Nurgle. And my reaction instead of revulsion is, I mean, yeah. Like the dude, good. the dude's got a point. Right? But, you know, also going back to, you know, Christianity, some of those writings, you know, uh, you read uh, Paradise Lost and all that. Satan makes some damn good points. And if you, you read about the temptation of Christ, he makes some good points there too. So in a way it's, it's, uh, you know, cause Satan's got, got, got his points. Jesus and God have their points. It's the same, same thing here, which is why it's kind of at a stalemate, which is another thing I thought the guy Haley just captured so well. He did. And you know, on one hand, I generally despise Deus as Machinus. I despise them. But <laughs> the fact that um, the fact I thought it worked really well because frankly they were not on even ground. Mortarian was tricksy. They were not on even ground. It was not a fair fight, which was not okay. And there needs to be a third book. I understand logistically here, right? It's why Luke didn't kill Vader on Vespa and instead got knocked down a whole because we need to have a third movie um 
But it worked in this. He actually sold it and made it work. Right. Mortarian gets bumped back off by reasons unknown. And it works. Because, frankly, I want them to have another conversation. <laughs> I just, like, you know, uh, what's that stupid book that everybody really liked? It was like Days with Mori or something like that. I just want conversations with Reboot and Mortarian. <laughs> <laughs> they can have tea and discuss how their father Tuesdays with Mori. Tuesdays with Mori, that's what it was. You can have Tuesdays with Mortarian and Reboot. I like this. This needs to be a thing. Guy Haley, yeah. get on this. <laughs> Make this a short story. This whole after, series. After you write the Titanicus novel that you're going to clearly write because you're really good at that. And I think he's also, uh, I think he's on the uh, the staff for the uh, Siege of Terra, so he might be busy. Oh, he is. He is. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that, actually. Handle Mortarian and give us some more insight into that. Also, um, please don't kill Reboot in the third book. Like, I'll be super sad. I will riot. Even if, like, Mortarian and Reboot kill each other, I will riot. I don't want either one of them to go, to be totally honest. No, you gotta keep this balanced, yo. And, yeah, I... The conversation was so good. And, again, he's not wrong from his own point of view right sounding it was like, just it sounding was... like obi-wan here <laughs> what i told you was true no exactly see the star wars parallels continue but the conversation happens i mean at the very end of the book it was the best note to end the book on and again it did it really did that's why i made that empire comparison is that it ends with that big confrontation between the big bad and our hero right? Big bad and the hero. There is no clear end. Right. And it was so good. And you know there's going to be another one. Another confrontation. Um, I just, I thought it was such a master stroke to end on that conversation. And again, the fact that Mortarian makes some points. I mean, it's stuff about Nurgle, though. I don't care if you get to be immortal because you live in the garden of eternal rebirth. I am entirely too vain for pustules and my liver hanging out. Yeah, I, I did like that comment from Typhus when he was he was saying, uh, you know, like they can shoot them all they all they want, but you can't kill somebody who doesn't care that their liver is hanging out of them. <laughs> like, yeah, you, it was such a good line. You make a point. I I get it, but um, if that's what I have to do for eternal life. Is to have my intestines hanging out? It's not happening. Like, yeah, I, I too am too vain for this. Yeah, well, and there's a there's a there's a scene where um, Deverus says their stench was worse than their sight. They stank so much he could smell them over the frothing water, even through his rebreather. He thought if they came nearer, he might simply die by being in proximity to them. They smell the disease of the most hopeless hospitals in the worst of war zones in the deepest, darkest plague pits. Oh God. Like, I think I was, I think I told you that when I was a kid, we lived in Asia and we had to walk over this open sewer every day in 90 degree weather, 90% humidity. I gagged every time. And every single day we had to do this and I gagged every time. Couldn't do it. No, I just couldn't the vanity and just I have a short gag reflex and smells 
like reading this, I was like, oh god. No, they they lost me at whale bombs. Actually, you know what? Oddly enough, the, the whale didn't bother me, but the head grenades they were throwing in this book, those oddly enough that is what bothered me that was the proverbial straw for me because when they started like talking about chucking those heads and they would explode i was like no that's too much see those <laughs> didn't bother me but yet um matthew taking the head of his beloved teacher and making that his servitor bothered me greatly <laughs> well somebody's got to be a servitor but not somebody that you know and that you cradle like a baby. This is no. Those are the I didn't even get to finish making. I just realized that. So you know he's got you know his teacher as a servitor, cradling it like a baby. How do we not know that Alpha Legion didn't do this on purpose, and made this that left that skull there on purpose to plant something, whether it's from the word bearers or Magnus or whatever or whatever, whatever they're doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On the nose right there. I had I mean, the same thought again. Like that male voice before he heard the come find me. This could all be Alpha Legion's plan. Yeah, because the Alpha Legion is working for humanity, which unfortunately means they're working directly against the Loyalist Primarchs currently. So, which when you get to legion that book that's a whole other thing but yeah all sorts of again seeds little seeds mm -hmm. uh, i will say having finished this book i have one concern and one concern alone okay uh dark imperium was great this was fantastic i don't i i'm really nervous for the third book because i'm like can he follow it up like can he can he stick the landing? Like we said this, so we also said this after we saw uh, Infinity War. We loved Infinity War. Infinity War was so good. If they can stick the landing. They almost did. The <laughs> almost did. Missed it by that much. Well, okay, uh, I'll put it this way. As long as there's not time travel in the third book, he's going to stick the landing. Okay, that's true. Hmm. Uh. <laughs> well, do you want to take us out and tease our next book? Oh, yes, I do, because I am totally excited about the next book. So you have listened to the Warhammer 40k book club episode regarding the Plague War, Dark Imperium, second one of Guy Haley's books. Uh, dang it, my computer just locked up. <laughs> happens when we rely on technology for, for shit we're professionals we are we're totally professionals i don't remember who i was talking to but he was talking about this one podcast he was listening to and he's like yeah it's really good the editing is like you know star quality and it's professionally done i was like yeah our, ours is not <laughs> but, no. but we try but but be sure to join us for our next book where we dive into the world of the traitor marines with the talent of horus by aaron Dinsky bowden He's a good writer, too. Can't wait. Can't wait. Can't wait. Aaron Dembski Bowden is so good with the Trader Marines. I'm so excited. Even even with Palm Tree Head. Palm Tree Head. Ah, see, now that's all I'm going to see. Because all I kept well, thinking was, like, he'd be awesome at Thrasher parties. But no, you're right. It does look like a 
palm. No, it looks like, um, what's that Pokemon? The one looks like a palm tree. Executor. Or the truffula trees from the Lorax. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sure does. <laughs> All right. Anyway, anyway. so, so okay. as you know, I've just made fun of Abaddon, which actually we're probably going to make fun of Abaddon again whenever we talk about the Talon of Horus. So we're very excited about that. So we are an unofficial book club and we are not affiliated with the Black Library or any of its affiliates, but you can still find the vidcast and podcast on our website at wh40kbookclub.com. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, give a review and all those wonderful things to the vidcast on YouTube or the podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitchers. Our site also has articles about our adventures and reading other Warhammer 40k books and short stories outside of the book club books. Because I'm reading Horse Heresy. Did you know? Just Are you? I am. So please come to the site and stay a while and read from a crag.